the first part of this verse of chapter 3 of Malachi is my text where God said, you have said, is it vain? It is vain to serve God. My question to you this morning, is it? Is it vain to serve God? So there are two groups that we'll be looking at today. Actually, there's a third group earlier in the chapter. That group, we'll call them the first group, we won't talk about, but in Malachi chapter 3, that group had gone away from the ordinances of the Lord. So we would call that the forsaking group. They forsook the ordinances. The second group, the group we'll be talking about first, is in verses 13 and 14. These are the formalists. They have made an effort to keep the ordinances of God, but they came to a conclusion. They were making efforts to be pious people. They had kept the ordinances, and God does not object and say, you haven't done that in some sense. The problem is they're formalists, and they approach God on a formalistic basis. And the third group are the fearers, the God-fearers. This is the group you want to be in. This is the group you want to be about. This is the person you want to be, or at least that you and I should be. So our outline will go something like this this morning. First, we'll look at words spoken that were stout against God. Then we'll look at words spoken that were of great interest to God. He hearkened and He heard it. Third, the Lord will speak and give us great words of promise for those that fear Him in the second group. The words of promise are not for those in the first group. And sometimes we find ourselves in the first group. So let's look at these words this morning. First, there were words of harshness to God. He says and calls them out as we look at this sixth dispute In the book of Malachi, we've looked at most of them in some way. Here's the sixth one. Your words have been stout, which means severe, harsh against me. The words they were speaking, saith the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against thee? How has our conversation been against you? God opens up the dialogue and confronts them. Again, for the sixth time, they object So the Lord of hosts, the God of glory, said, What have we said against you? Then God, using this by His own occasion to expose the heart of the first group. You have said, It is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept His ordinance and we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? It's vain. It's getting us nowhere. It's like a dead-end street. It's unavailing. It's empty of purpose. It's empty of results. Have you ever felt that way in the service of God? Have you ever been a formalist? Now, a formalist is a person who follows a formula with an expectation of an absolute answer when you plug in the formula every time. And the formula, algebraically, goes something like this. G plus parenthesis, K plus M, or G times, we should say, to get right with algebra, G times parenthesis K plus M equals P. 
The G represents God. He's the one making the demands. He's the one that can make you happy. He's the one that can make religion profitable. He has the power. So we start with G, and they started there. That's good. G times parenthesis. K represents keeping ordinances, and that's all over the Bible. Who can read the Bible and say God's really not concerned if you keep His commands or not? They're still on the right track. G, God, He's the one that has the power to bless. He's the one that has the power to make you happy. He's the one that has the power to make religion profitable. So you keep ordinances. Plus, we're in the parenthesis, M for mourning. That's penitence. You need to repent. That's all over the Bible. So, the formalists plug in the formula. They started with God. They have the K in place. They have the mourning. They've kept ordinances. They've made an attempt to be pious. And they're walking mournfully before the Lord equals P for profit or gain. And what's the problem? God is not delivering. God is not bringing us the profit that we are after. God is not keeping what He said He would do. Or is He? And so their conclusion is it's vain to serve God. Now Paul told Timothy, as we've considered this verse many times before in the New Testament, there would come a day, perilous times. There were times in his day and there are times in our day where men will have certain kinds of character traits that are not good, but there'll be people within Christianity. That's the point of Paul to Timothy. These people are not outside Christianity. They're they're inside. These people are formulists. They have the form of godliness, but they don't have the power of godliness. Now, we've learned in Malachi, the power of godliness is the fear of God which the second group has. The first group doesn't have the fear of God, which means they really don't love God. And that's what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. They love something. It's not that they don't have any love. They love pleasure. They don't love God. So they plug in the formula of Christianity and they expect God to deliver on their pleasure, which has zero to do with God. Absolutely nothing to do with God. Now, their their error is that they think God is a formalist. You just come to God and plug in your formula and He'll give you what you want. We looked at some of that last Sunday, that God does not pander to the lust of men. It's interesting when James is writing to the Jewish Christian, perhaps he's connecting with this thought here. He's writing primarily about the Sermon on the Mount, the words that Jesus delivered and gave us more information about those words in that sermon. He would say, draw nigh unto God and He will draw nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. There's form. Wash your hands. He didn't stop there. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. God is not about outward forms. There are outward forms. God is not just interested in washing your hands. He is after purification But it's a heart purification that then gives rise to clean hands, using the metaphor of James. Be afflicted and mourn. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Now there's real mourning. So God is after mourning, but then He says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. 
So their calculated error is that God is a formalist, that you just plug in a formula, and every time He gives you the P that you want, the profit of the gain. But we already saw God said, return unto me, and I'll return to you. God is after a heart that fears Him, a heart that values Him, a heart that honors Him. And the first group, the problem is the God that they serve. Now look what they say next. Here's the conclusion they come to. Verse 15, And now, this word represents a transition. It means from now on, henceforth, we're resolved. Because of verse verse 14, it's vain to serve God. It's been unavailing. It's brought no profit. We have kept ordinances. We've walked mournfully. Now, here's where we are. We call the proud happy. Yea, they that were wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Now, there's a play on words here. They're going to take two of the words that God has already spoken in this chapter and sort of use them in an opposite way. So verse 12, God said, All nations shall call you blessed. They said, We call the happy or the proud blessed. The word blessed and the word happy are the same Hebrew words. God, you call, you say the nations will call us happy. We think the proud people are the happy ones. Why? Because they're set up. In our modern language, we would say they've got it made in the shade. Business is going well. Family is going well. There's prosperity. There's wealth. There's everything you could want. So, you say people will call us blessed. We say it's the proud people. They're the happy ones. The second word they use is the word tempt. And God had already used that word in the word prove. He said, bring in verse 10 all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in mine house and prove me, test me, tempt me, you could say. This is not the evil kind of tempting God. It's God saying, test me with faith. Put your trust in me. Bring it in and I'll pour out a blessing. And they said, Lord, it's the wicked that are testing you and proving you, and look what you're doing. They escape judgment. You deliver them. It looks back to chapter 2, verse 17. Where is the God of judgment? Where is He? And so the pattern of their thinking we've seen throughout Malachi, They question the love of God. They question the judgment of God. They question God on every angle because the profit that they're after, the gain of religion, is the gain of what God will give them in prosperity, in wealth, or however they may fill in for the word P for profit. Is that why you're serving God? then at some point in time, you're going to say it's vain to serve God. It's worthless. There's no profit. There's no no gain. You see, the danger of what they're saying is that when you come to the point where you say, now, this is getting me nowhere. Now, it's not worth it to serve God. Now, you're at the point of apostasy. What happens when you're in a dead-end job? What do you do? 
The word vain could be dead end. No opportunity for promotion, no opportunity for gain. Nothing's going to increase. You get a new job. What happens when you're on a dead end street? You're stopped. You can't move forward. You can't advance. You can't get where you're going. You turn around and go the other direction. What happens when you're serving God in what you think is a dead end religion? You change gods. You get another God. Now, the reality here is that they were already serving another God. See? They were serving the God of profit. That's Malachi's point. They were in it for the God of the greatest gain. The reality is, beloved, so are you. You can't deny it. In fact, all men are religious men. The atheist, the agnostic, is worshiping the God of the greatest gain because he cannot help it, nor can you. So what God are we serving this morning? Jesus would say, you remember, you can't serve two masters. You either hate the one or love the other. You will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and man. Well, why not? Can't we moonlight with God? Can't we work the job we really like but may not pay enough, but then work the second job we really hate to keep the family going? Well, you might do that on a human level, but not with God. Because the God that you serve is the God that you love. The God that you serve is the God of greatest gain. And either God is the greatest gain, or money is the greatest gain, or something else is the greatest gain. Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your heart defines who you serve, not your lips. So on one level, the Israelites are giving lip service. We've been keeping your ordinances. We've been serving you and serving you, when in reality, they weren't. They were formalist with a formula, so they had outward forms of godliness, but the heart was given to the greatest gain of profit. And when it didn't come in, when the mother load didn't happen, they were ready to apostatize. And you will too. You will. You will not serve anywhere where there's no gain. You will either be a good formalist on the outside when your heart is going after a multiplicity of gods. And who are they? The God of the greatest gain. And what does God say? Your words have been stout against me. They're not for me, they're against me. All right, the second group. This is the group we want to be in. We should want to be in. When they speak, God hears with great interest. So listen to now. Look at the contrast. Verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before Him, the Lord, for them on behalf of those that fear the Lord and that thought upon His name. A few questions here. Why did the Lord write a book about it? 
a book of remembrance. Secondly, what were they saying? That's what I want to know. And thirdly, why were they saying it? Why were they saying it? So right in the centerpiece of this verse, the Lord hearkened and heard it. Now the Lord heard what the Israelites said, and in fact, He hears everything. You will never have a conversation, but what God doesn't hear it. So in those times you think you're talking secretly or you think somebody's about to say something that's not good because it's in secret, just remind them, God's about to hear this. In fact, He already knows what you're about to say. You may want to stop right there. God hears everything, but He doesn't hear it in the same way, apparently. Because to hearken means to pay attention with interest. It means they captured God's ear means he regards what they're saying. So words were stout against them. The only interest there is what they were saying wrong about God. But here words are hearkened, they're listened to, there's interest, there's regard. God is drawn into the conversation. And as a result, he writes a book. Now God doesn't need to write a book of remembrance. He, He doesn't need that. He never forgets anything. The omnipotent mind will never forget a single word you've ever said said forever, forever. Now, gloriously, to be forgiven means he won't bring it up again. It's been paid for. But he can't forget it. Nothing you've ever done is ever forgotten. It's just cast into the sea and forgiven. He'll never bring it up again because Christ paid for it. So why does he write a book? Two reasons. One, he wants you to know how highly interested he is in what you say when you fear the Lord and you speak one to another. And then he wants you to know he will not forget what you said. The word here, remembrance, is more like combination diary planner, right? A diary is what you write in to record events and experiences just to remember what you did that day. But a planner is something more. It's for remembering to act. It's for remembering to take action. That's the word here. So God wants you to know He's remembering it as a source of interest to Him. And secondly, He wants you to know He's remembering in a way that what you said is related to the fact that He's going to take action in the future. And that's what's coming in the next verse. What's He going to do? They shall be mine when I make up my jewels and I will spare them. So He wants to strengthen our faith to know It has value what we're saying. We're saying what these people say. He won't forget it. It's indelibly written in his mind. And then the three results follow in verse 17. Now, next question. What were they saying? Well, look at the parallelism. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. Then they that feared the Lord thought upon his name. They were thinking on the name and they were saying the name one to another. Now that's a metonymy, which means they weren't saying God and Jesus back and forth. They were speaking of His attributes. They were talking about His glory, His holiness, His power, His sovereignty, His justice, His goodness, His mercy, His grace, His eternality, His omnipresence, His omnipotence. His long-suffering, His love, His meekness, His holiness, His faithfulness. 
whatever is known about the name of God, they were expressing it to one another. Now that sounds like God is kind of egocentric, doesn't it? What would you think of a man that hears people saying good things about him? So I love to hear that. Say more. Well, that wouldn't be good. That, that's kind of ego-driven. But what does ego mean? It means a concern for one's self-esteem and self-importance. That's bad for men, but that's holy when God does that. Why? Well, can anybody tell me a person in the universe that God should esteem higher than himself? Just one. Just one. Just, Just call it out. Is there something in the universe that God should think is more important than himself? Just one. Just anything. So it is right, it is holy, it is God being God when He esteems and honors and takes interest in those who esteem and honor and take interest in the most valuable, greatest treasure in the universe. You talk about that, you get God's interest. And when you do, the upshot is, it's for your good. Write that down on a piece of paper. Put put, put it in your mind and meditate on it. Anytime God demands that I think of Him as greatest treasure, greatest thing, greatest esteem, He's doing it for us. Because it will bring you the greatest gain. Isn't that ironic? What specifically were they thinking about His name? They were thinking that he was the greatest or that he was the greatest gain. Now, how do you know that? It's not in the text, you say. That's what you should say. You should say, doesn't say it, prove it. I'm going to try. I'm going on record to say when they thought about the name of God and they expressed it to one another, they were saying God is the greatest gain. Three reasons. One, God was not pleased with saying there's no profit in serving God. Now he's pleased. Because they're thinking something about his name. Well, they could have been thinking, this is a real drag. You know, <laughs> to, to hear a sermon for an hour is just a bore. That gives him no pleasure. Right? That's like saying to your husband, your wife, you know, being with you is a real bore. <laughs> That's not a good thing. And they're just human sinners. Second reason, this is antithesis. Verse 16 is the exact opposite of verse 15. It's vain to serve God. There's no gain. Those that fear God, there is gain. Where? In the name of God. That is antithesis. It's the exact opposite. And then thirdly, and perhaps more importantly, the word think probably could be better translated. I say that because we we have some freedom on the word chosen. There's a lot of nuances to this word. I'm not criticizing these translators. But when you think about the name of God, you should do what? Esteem the name of God. And that's what the word means. See, If you just think anything about the name of God, well, it's not so great. It's not so good. It's not so lovely. That would get God's interest in a negative way. But here the word means to esteem Him highly. What's to be esteemed about God? His glory and the gain of who God is. Beloved, it is gain to serve God. 
That's the point of the people that fear God. As opposed to the people that say, it's just a dead end street. Don't waste your time. You won't get what you want out of it. Well, what do you want out of it? Riches and honor and wealth? Well, if that's the reason you serve him, you will turn away to another God. That's the reality. So let's look at a few nuances here about the word to think on his name. First is to esteem. We said that. They esteemed the name of God. And what they esteemed, they spoke. Because Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So whatever's in the heart is going to come out of the mouth. Whatever you value, whatever you treasure in the heart, at some point is going to explode out of the mouth. You know that because Jesus said that. So what are they saying to one another? They're talking about God's esteem, His value, because that's what it means to fear God. It means to hope in God. It means to trust God. It means to love God. Among other things, that it means to fear God. So those that fear God spoke to one another because they esteemed the name of God. Secondly, it means to impute There's probably 20 different nuances, but I'm I'm just picking a couple, not because I think everyone should have been put here, but they fit what we know the rest of the Bible. Impute means to account, to calculate, or to take inventory. It's used in Genesis 15, 6, concerning Abraham. He believed God, Abraham believed God, and it was counted, it was imputed, same word as think, unto him for righteousness. What that means is, God took an inventory of Abraham's sin. He counted, he calculated. And rather than destroy him with his wrath, he charged it to his son. He took an inventory of his son's righteousness, his perfections, his holiness, and charged it to Abraham. By faith simply means Abraham saw it, and he rejoiced in it, and he embraced it. Faith is not righteousness. Christ is right. Faith simply looks embraces and treasures Christ and His righteousness. It's imputed by faith. It's not imputed by people who disesteem God, do not love Christ, and do not think He's God. No imputation there. Only through faith, God-given faith. But here, what does it mean? There's no imputation here. Well, the implication is that those that fear God and speak often one to another, they take an inventory of the name of God and his esteem, and then they ask, how does it work itself out in life? That's what they're talking about. We take an inventory of the glories, plural of God, and his attributes, which is what the Bible is about, and the glories of Christ, and then through that inventory, we start to say, how does this work out in family, in marriage, in work, in society, in church? Which leads to the third one. It can mean to plan. How do you plan the name of God? This word is used in Proverbs 16.4, I think it is. A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. He devises, he plans, he plans to take action, right? It's an action word. You put things in your planner, this is what you're going to do. So now, after esteeming the name of God, after taking inventory of the name of God and how that works out, we move out in everyday life with the name of God that then begins to take shape in what we do. And this is how we speak to one another. So let's take, just for example, the justice of God. We'll look at one attribute, His justice. Praise the Lord, 
Roe v. Wade was overturned at the federal level, and that's a move towards justice, isn't it, for the unborn. That's just. People don't think it is, but it's just. Not because the Constitution says it is, because the Bible tells us that the sanctity of human life were made in the image of God. To destroy it is to attack God. All right? So when we think about and esteem the justice of God, we take inventory of His justice and how it worked itself out in life, we begin to plan. What do we do? We know now that crisis centers and pregnancy centers need help more than ever. So to love justice is to do justice and to go to work doing justly. Micah 6, 8. We esteem God's name, and we talk about that name, and then we take inventory of how that name applies to justice in the world, and therefore we start doing justly. We move out as servants of the Lord, because it's not without gain that we serve God. So to see God as gain frees our hands to go to work, when I could be doing everything else that, frankly, gives me gain. Your biggest struggle, your biggest struggle as a Christian is competing profit. Just mull that over a while. Your biggest struggle is competing desires for the greatest gain. If you can't serve the Lord and obey His commands, there's only one reason. You have found what you think is great gain. Mark it down. Check your own heart and see if it's not true. So we move out. We want to help whatever small way we can, doing justice. Then we hear that people are responding wrongly and starting fires. They say there's going to be a lot of violence taking place as a result of the Supreme Court ruling. We esteem justice. We then think about how that justice plays out in our life. Now, what do we do when people start harming people and property? I know what I feel like doing. You ever felt like that? (laughs) Just round the neck, just shake a few times, and it won't die, just recover, but you got the message. No, we become gospel advocates. How does that relate to justice? Because God's justice has been satisfied, and you know it. You know it. And there are people who have gotten abortions and maybe they're grieving or maybe they don't know yet the glory of God in Christ and that it's a sin. And you have a a gospel of justice that says God's justice, He didn't forgive you in an unjust way. Justice has been satisfied forever on behalf of those who trust and repent and turn to Christ. What a message of joy for a mother who thinks there's no hope for me. There's no way I can be forgiving for doing such a terrible thing. See, the reality is we're not going to take vengeance because vengeance belongs to the Lord and the Lord has already taken vengeance on behalf of those that are His and if they're not, He'll take vengeance. And He says, rest in Him. Rest when Jesus comes in flaming fire. Rest and go to work and leave vengeance to God. So we become gospel advocates. But those people, you know, they just do such evil things. But the root of your sin is exactly the same as the person that killed their baby. 
Now, I'm not saying there's not a difference in killing someone and not. There is. But at the root, we've all come short of the glory of God, which means, as we learned in Malachi, your sin was because of a me-centered, self-serving, self-interested love where you're pursuing the greatest gain. And if the greatest gain means this person is in my way like a baby, what does the greatest me-centered gain do? It gets rid of it. Everything you ever did was for the same reason, although it didn't lead, perhaps, to the taking of an unborn baby. And perhaps someone here that did that. You never shared it with anybody. Is there hope for you? Yes. We have the message of the gospel. So we just applied the justice of God in a small way. And what happened? We esteemed it. We then took inventory. What does He want us to do? And then we withheld from taking vengeance because of the justice of God that's coming. And now we become gospel advocates. Just on one attribute that we didn't even plumb to its depths. So... They are esteeming God. God's interested in that because of their esteem for God. And then they're speaking to one another, but what are they saying now? What are they saying? Or rather, why are they saying? So we're going to get that in the next part. Verse 17, now we look at the words of promise from God. Now God speaks, and He's speaking to the second group. He's speaking to the God-fearers. He's speaking to those that esteem His name, talk about His name, and talk to one another as it relates to God. What does God say? Verse 17. And they shall be mine. That's the people in verse 16. This is a group we want to be in. They shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, special treasure, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and and the wicked between him that serveth God and the one that doesn't. And the one that serves God serves him. Why? Because of the prophet. And the one that doesn't serve God doesn't serve him. Why? Because there's no prophet. So why should you serve God? For the prophet. For the right prophet. For the eternal prophet. For the profit that God has given you. The gain of His Son. So let's look at these three things. Then we'll talk first about how the the first thing that God says is going to tell us why they're speaking to one another about the esteem of God, His character. They shall be mine. Now if they shall be mine, the implication is they already are His. What He means is in a future day, it'll be shown who's really mine, the one that's serving God, the one that's not. So God's not saying in that day I'll decide to make them mine or I will then. No, they are His. The ones that fear God and love Him are His. And they will be His on that day. And He'll show. He'll manifest. Now the immediate application was to the Jews on the day of Christ because of verse 5, the day of Elijah. He would come before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's John the Baptist. That's the destruction of Jerusalem. So when Jesus came on the scene, who knew who was serving Him and not? But then it began to get clear, didn't it? You couldn't look at the providence of God. You couldn't look at who was prospering and who was not. That's what they were doing and making wrong assumptions. But when Jesus spoke, it started to divide people. Okay? 
And then the dreadful day came. But for our application for a future day, that day will come when God will start to divide. In the final day of judgment, sometimes in temporal judgments, you start to see a division, even over an issue like abortion. You start to say, I never thought they were on that side. Now, I'm not saying this is a, a, a valid, absolute way to say, well, then they don't fear God. They may be confused. But nevertheless, temporal judgments bring discernment on who's at least on the Lord's side in that moment and who's not, who's serving Him and who's serving themselves. Now the implication is that if they're His now and they will be His in the future, that those that fear the Lord will be preserved by God. They'll be preserved. Because why? He's the Lord of hosts. They shall be mine, saith the Lord of armies. The Lord of the universe the Lord over all human armies, celestial beings, celestial bodies, armies of angels, all humanity. The Lord, the sovereign host over all armies says, you will be mine in that day. Isn't that good news? You belong to me. You're my jewel. Nothing is going to stop me from having you. Okay, now why are they saying what they're saying? Because God is using your words about His name to preserve you. That's astounding. Beloved, we are not fatalists. What you say has meaning and value because God uses it. It's not just, okay, whatever happens, happens. It just works out. Who cares? Oh, no. Sometimes people take that position when it comes to Serving God. So, well, I'm not one of those that really think God has gained. It's a big deal. You know, it'll work out. Or maybe it won't work out. It's all in God's hands anyway. You're a fatalist. In Deuteronomy 29, God said through Moses, I have not given them eyes to see to this day. Okay, there you have it. See? Haven't been eyes to see. I don't have eyes to see. In Isaiah 45, to the same nation, He says, Look at me and be saved. Put your eyes on me. Because God, so often when you start looking, he gives eyes. I mean, that's the way the Bible unfolds in the book of Acts. People are looking. He gives them new set eyes. Oh, I see the problem is you don't want to look. So quit blaming God with your smattering of theology as if He's the problem. No, it's your will that's the problem. So what do I say to that person? Look! Start looking. Look. You're not looking. How can you even talk about the name of God if you're not looking at God? That's another thing. So I don't know what to say to people. Well, His name is in the Word. We've got to start there. Say, I love God, but I don't know what to say. Well, just read His Word. How often do you think about His name as it relates to the Word? The place where His name is valued. The place where God has esteemed His name and written a book. A book for our remembrance. A book that expresses who He is so that we may then think on His name and, and talk with each other about the name of God. So I'm making the case that because God says they will be mine and those that fear God speak to one another, what they're saying has value and God uses it to preserve our faith. And there are a number of verses that would speak to this. I'll give you one, Hebrews 3.13. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, of saying, it's vain to serve God, and now it's the proud people that are happy. I've had it. Take heed. 
Verse 14. But exhort one another daily. Now here's the parallelism. Watch the parallelism. To take heed is to exhort each other often daily. Lest there be an evil heart in you of unbelief and departing. Now here's the parallelism. Lest, same word, exhort one another. Lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So what does it mean to have a heart of unbelief that departs from God? It means you become hardened through sin's deceitfulness. What's God going to use to keep that from happening? You speak often one to another. Exhort one another. Daily. Often. What do you say? Oh, it's not vain. Hang on to Christ. I know you're being persecuted. And you're being troubled. What has he said in the word? He said you'll be his. And what does that mean for you? What will that mean? Joy and pleasure forever. Sometimes we can't see past the end of our nose. All we can think about is is a vapor. A vapor. It's just so short. My vapor is increasingly going away. And some of you here are older than I am. Don't live for the vapor. What you can get out of the vapor? Live for the glory of God. So take heed by exhorting one another so that you don't depart from the living God so that your heart is not hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. What does sin say to you? There's no prophet here, man. Get out. What are you doing? The prophet's out there. That's a lie. That's a lie. That's an evil heart of unbelief. I don't believe God. I don't believe what He said. Is God a liar? If you found God to be a liar, please tell us. The hardening process starts slowly. First, I was sensitive to sin. I felt the conviction, and then I started blaming sin on everybody else. Or the persecution came, tribulation came, and it started to harden my heart and thinking things that were not true, saying things that were not true about God. And then what happens? A hard heart is no longer penetrable. What was a heart of flesh begins to get real hard. And that person won't receive anything then. You could exhort them all day long. You could say the truth of God's Word. You could verbatim. You could talk about God's name all day long. Nothing gets through. Why? The heart has become hardened in departing from the living God. Departing from Him how? As profit. As gain as the God that you serve. So the Jew in Hebrews 3 went back to the God they were serving before. The God of the greatest prophet. The God of the, 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 the easiest comfort. The God of less pain. Because if I go back to Jerusalem and the law, they're not going to hurt me there. I want the God that thinks most about me. The irony is the God of the Bible is thinking about you when He demands that you esteem Him. What does He think about? Your prophet. Your gain. But you don't believe Him. Sometimes I don't either, right? Oh, to walk by faith is to walk by the Word of God, not by the way we think. Stop thinking like you think. Why should I do that? Because it's what God says in Isaiah 55. Let the wicked forsake his thoughts. Don't think anymore like that. Think what I say, and you'll be rooted and grounded. 
Hang on to God. Now what's the upshot? Verse 15. For, why should you exhort one another? Because we are partakers, we're sharers, we're participants in Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our confidence to the end. That just means as long as we don't apostatize and turn away from God forever. Why are these people going to turn away? There's no profit. There's just no profit here. What's going to keep you from turning away? The profit. Or in Hebrews, very distinctly, the joy. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the root of endurance is the joy in front of you or the hope set before you. Those are synonymous in Hebrews. Hope set before you, Hebrews 6, is joy set before you, Hebrews 12, 3. Because your expectation is that God is is so going to deliver on your desire for happiness, He's going to overwhelm your soul. That's what I'm confident with, because that's what God said. He is gain, and when it seems like there's no gain because of the pain in your life, you look ahead to the promise. And what does He say? You will be mine. What does that mean? I'm going to saturate your soul. I'm going to show you what gain is. I'm going to show you, you you were so pitiful thinking that was gain. I just pitied you. Just like a little toddler who just keeps playing in the sand and there's a beach out there and he doesn't get it. The sand's good for him. It's just, the problem is it's pathetic what we want. It is pathetic that I want creation over God. That is, I'm going to say it again, pathetic. It's so shallow and so small, right? But God saved you. God opened your eyes so you would fear Him and know, oh, the real gain is God. So why are they saying the name of God? Because they're exhorting and encouraging, brother, don't quit. The payoff of Christ's righteousness is going to come in the mother load of the resurrection and it's going to be overwhelming. So don't think the payoff's now. God is good. God provides. All of you have provision that I'm aware of. Abundant provision. But that's not your God, is it? He just gives. He's a giving God. Number two, God says, they shall make up my jewels. He didn't say, I'm going to make my jewels. He said, I'm going to make them up. One man illustrated it's like a jewel that has all these jewels and he strings them together in a future day. They're already jewels. In the resurrection, he's going to string us together. We're all going to come together. All Christians. But your jewels now. That word means a a, a peculiar treasure. Every time this word is used in the Old Testament as a peculiar treasure, it always says, I think without fail, God says the peculiar treasure is for Himself. I own them. They're mine. They're my jewels. They're for me. And then when you go to the New Testament, the two places that Paul and Peter will take this idea, which we know of in Titus 2.14, 1 Peter 2.9. They both say peculiar possession, peculiar people. That's the same idea as the word jewel here, peculiar treasure. They both speak of these jewels for God, for Christ. He will purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And both contexts talk about doing good deeds. I just quoted 2.14, 1 Peter 2.9, you're a chosen people, holy priesthood, 
a peculiar people, to show forth the praises, to display the excellencies of Him that called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And two verses later, so abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may by your good works glorify God, the day of visitation. So both contexts being a jewel of God, when He'll make up His jewels, is a context in the New Testament, and we could make the case here, a special purpose. A special treasure has a special purpose. And what's the purpose? Well, New Testament language, good deeds. What's so special about that? What does that do? Your good deeds, particularly on the island of Crete in the day of persecution, Peter, reveal that God is greatest gain. I mean, nobody's doing what you do, right? I mean, they're all suffering and being persecuted. The government's after them. What are you doing? You crazy Christian. Justice, mercy. You're displaying the worth of God, sustaining grace, and what profit is to God because the good work demands that you give up something of gain. Doesn't it? I'm going to give something to this cause. I could use that for some gain. Why are you doing that? Because God is greater gain. It's a no-brainer. All the good deeds of love you can do first come from loving God as the greatest esteem. When you do good deeds in every context, when it gets tough or when it's not tough, you're displaying the excellency of the attributes of God that you're talking to each other about because you fear God. You're encouraging each other to keep doing the good deeds. You're stirring one another up to good works. And you're expressing expressing through the good deeds of love, God is esteemed. And you're glorifying God. So even there in your good deeds is an expression of the worth and the value of God. And then thirdly and lastly, it says, as a man serveth, or as a man Uh, spares his son that serves him. And of course, if a son is serving a man, who's he serving? His father. His father. Now the reason all this is true is because God did not spare his own son. The reason God's going to spare you, you that fear the Lord and trust in Jesus, because to fear God is to trust Jesus. He's going to spare you. He has spared you in that day in the future judgment. You're spared. The word spared also means compassion and pity. God has compassion on you because of Jesus. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So because of Christ, we're spared, and we will be spared in that day. But it says he spares like Sparing a son who serves his father. So again, we see kind of a description of what it means to serve God. See, in verse 14, they're serving God like an employee to an employer. He's just a master. Master, we did what you said. Where are the goods? Where's the gain? Son doesn't do that. So God's very clearly giving the antithesis of two kinds of service, two kinds of people, Those that don't fear, those that do. Those that don't serve God, those that do. Those that esteem profit has nothing to do with God. Those that esteem God and whatever 
gain in addition God gives that? It's yours to be used for the glory of God because it's not the real treasure. It has value, not it. So how does a son serve his father? He serves him like the prodigal, doesn't he? That left, came back. He first thought, I'll go back and serve my father like a master. All the other slaves serve him and there's abundance of food. They have enough to eat. I'll go back and just be a slave to the master. And the father says, no, you won't. You won't be a slave in my house. And so when the son's returning out of repentance, what's the word the writer uses? The father had compassion on him. And that's not the same word, but that's what the word spare means in our text. Compassion. What did the father do? He hugged him and kissed him out of love. Wasn't pushing him down, saying, you always do that. What, what is it with you? He loved him. Now look, this is not about your earthly father. You, you may have had a father that's, that's good like that, but you may not have had a father like that. So this is about God. Yeah, that's how we're supposed to be, but this is about God. God wants you to know, this is Him showing compassion. He says, put my ring on His finger, put my robe on His back, kill the fatted calf. My son was dead, he's alive, he was lost, he's found. Now what kind of service is the son going to do? He's going to serve him in all that the father supplies. All there's, there's food on the table, there's shoes on his feet, there's clothes on his back, there's tools for the farm, there's inheritance, there's education. There, there, everything the son needs is already there. And how does he start the service to the father? There's merrymaking because he res- returned to the father as gain. The father's love, how good it is. And there was another man that was serving the same father like a master to a slave. He said, I've been working all these years and what profit is it? It's like a dead-end streak. It's unavailing. It's gotten me nowhere. There he is. That's verse 14. All I wanted was the kid. You never gave me one. I just want to look good with my friends. I just want to be made much of. I want them to see how great I am. The father says, no. All that I have is yours. Why didn't you just come get the calf? I wanted to earn it. I wanted to be made much of. I wanted to be great. Again, we know that earthly fathers are, 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 are not exactly equivalent. You know, for example, one day you, you boys have to work, right? And, and you work yourself. But in the father's house here, he's doing all the supply. His compassion is providing And the oldest son wants to serve him like a slave. You know, Jesus tries to help us with our fears in Luke 12 when he says, Fear not, little flock, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's your father's pleasure. He's glad to give you the kingdom. He's really glad. Jesus wants us to overcome the fear that the father's really not glad. He really wants to judge us. He just thinks, I guess, for the blood of the son, I've got to do this. He's reluctant. He's glad. He's not like Chick-fil-A employees. You know why they say it's my pleasure. You know why. Because the check demands it. If I'm going to get paid, the manager says, i got to say this. You know they don't, they're not always glad to give you food. What about that customer who's belligerent? 
They say, I, I am not glad, but they smile and say, hey, it's my pleasure. Now, what would happen if you took the paycheck away? Say, look, I want you to serve here and work, but you'll never get paid again. No matter how much you like your employer, you're going away. When God says it's my pleasure to give you the kingdom, He means it. He means it. So don't be afraid, little flock. Because that's what it, you're afraid. You're afraid He doesn't mean it. You're afraid He really wants to bring the hatchet down on you. And He doesn't. He wants you to be free as His sons. He's a giver. He gives. He doesn't take. He doesn't need anything. He's not an employer. He doesn't need your work. He doesn't need anything about you. He's a giver. He's your Father. He gives you the kingdom. doesn't say He gives you money here. He does that, but that's not what He's about. Or fame or reputation or anything else. He gives you the kingdom. And what's the upshot? Sell what you have, give alms, provide yourselves bags, money bags, which wax not old, a treasure in heaven that faileth not, where no thief approaches, no moth corrupts, for where your treasure is, that will your heart be also. What gives you the freedom to love others with your money or your time or your good deeds? Your Father's good gladness and pleasure is to give you the kingdom which empowers you with the freedom from fear to be a giver. How? As a son serves his father. Not an employer, not a master, not an overlord, but a father that loves you and gave himself for you. So what do we conclude with here? Let our words not be stout against God, whether we say it or think it or act like it, that there's no profit to serve God. May we fear God and esteem His name so that we're speaking about that name. It means we've got to be in the Word about His name. doesn't mean everything always comes out right. Sometimes I've inserted foot uh, multiple times in the mouth. And, but we want to speak the name of the Lord to one another. We esteem it. We want to take inventory of it. See how it works out in the various ways that we know this name. And then God's promises by grace are what? You shall be mine. I will make up my jewels and I'll spare you. Well, not because you've done anything to be spared. Simply by His sovereign mercy and grace, God delights to spare His children. So serve Him like a child serves a father. Where the father provides everything and the child comes into that relationship Presumably, earthly with delight, but surely with the esteem of a father who's good, glorious, perfect, and full of love on your behalf. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word.